Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Tom, let's take a look at an interesting story. We have some former chiefs of the Homeland Security suggesting that some of the use of the Homeland Security Department uh, for border politics is uh, creating some issues. To give us a sense of what's going on there, we welcome Michaela Ross. Uh, Michaela is a Bloomberg government Homeland Security reporter. So, Michaela, give us a sense of kind of some of the issues swirling around the Homeland Security Department. Absolutely. Good morning to you both. And I join you actually just uh, a few yards from the Pentagon this morning at the TSA headquarters, where we are also commemorating uh, these moments of 9-11. So it is a very somber uh, moment here that I'm joining you from. And uh, but earlier this week, I was in New York. We were at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum with some of the former heads, the former secretaries of the the department that launched because of this day. The Department of Homeland Security um, is definitely the startup out of this. And uh, they were uh, several of them expressed uh, concerns, deep concerns that uh, 18 years after the fact uh, that there is um, more issues that are dividing the department politically and making it more difficult for the department to function uh, in the, the private sector. Uh, Michaela, Garrett Graff, uh, who had my book of the year a few years ago on the FBI and Mr. Mueller, has a wonderful new book out. It is a visceral book of interviews of September 11. And permeating, permeating that is somewhat the cacophony in Washington. Jonathan Bernstein in Bloomberg Opinion calls it the pure chaos off of Mr. Bolton's resignation. And within all of this at the periphery is Homeland Security. What's the state of the department right now? How would you frame that? What's well, a concern is that we're hearing from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, as well as uh, former officials, is that it is getting more difficult for the department to accomplish its goals in some ways, or I should say that such such a such a focus on uh, immigration enforcement, they fear is making uh, taking resources away from a lot of the other missions. Again, the department was formed out of this terrorist attack. It was formed to try to try to keep the the homeland safe. It has so many missions between TSA and FEMA and the Secret Service and the Coast Guard and cybersecurity, and yet the bulk of that of the bulk of its energy right now is in those immigration enforcement agencies. And there's worry that um, there might be other threats that aren't getting as much attention. There's worry the resources might not be getting to where they need to be. And there's worry that there's, it's causing division. So, Michaela, as the this department makes its concerns known, what has been the response so far from Congress? Uh, and Congress, we were just with uh, several of the um, House Homeland Security Committee yesterday. They are they were very upset, actually, in a separate incident. Uh, some of the top officials in the, in the Trump administration um, at first refused and then delayed an, a hearing about global threats that the committee has every year to try to hear about you know, what they need to do to try to make the department better and what they need to do to try to uh, address some of those threats. So um, both sides of the aisle, again, very concerned um, that uh, some top, top Trump officials, including the acting secretary of Homeland Security, um, were not able to to set aside the time um, now that has been rescheduled, of course, um, to try to talk about some of these threats with the homeland. So it's interesting. The um, Is there a sense, what is kind of the biggest concern on the part of the Department of Homeland Security about 
uh, what they're being tasked to do in immigration? Is it manpower? Is it other resources that are being diverted? What's really the big issue for them? The big issue on um, immigration enforcement coming into the fall, of course, is going to be the refocus on the border wall, which is definitely a top priority of the Trump administration. But that is going to be another issue that is really going to divide Congress because we're looking at all of the spending bills that need to be passed within the next, um, well, few weeks to, tr- to try to get it in on time, but this fall um, to avoid a shutdown. And at the heart of that is going to be this issue uh-huh. of trying to stem the flow of immigrants coming from the southwest border. McKenna Ross, thank you so much. Border politics hurting Homeland Security, to say the least, as well. Good to hear from her from TSA near the Pentagon on this September uh, 11th. Right now, we're going to know she's not in intensive care. She's been working through the morning from London on the London perspective of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange effort, a shock effort to purchase uh, the LSE. And she is Sarah Said. Sarah, let's look at the stock price up X percent, double digit, and it's given it back with a vengeance in the last hour. Why is that? Well, I think uh, there's uh, certainly an, an interesting offer that's been been put on the table. I mean, you know, the LSE had given anyone that was interested um, in acquiring the business a short window to make an offer after it had made the announcement that it was looking to tie up with the yeah. former Thomson Reuters business, um, um, Refinitiv. Now, you know, after, you know, if a deal with Refinitiv would have gone through, it would make the LSE almost unaffordable. So, you know, the LSE had ultimately, it's become open season on LSE, but they'd given right. you know, bidders a short window to come in and, and try and make that offer, which, uh, which uh, you know, Hong Kong has come and done. Right. And then it's cultural as well. This isn't Mary Poppins. It's not railways to India. It's the Chinese are coming in to buy London. I mean, that's a blunt way to put it. And I don't mean any aspersion there. But Sarah, there's a whole cultural and political overlay uh, uh, to this transaction, this proposed transaction. I mean, it'd be an understatement to say that, the, you know, the deal is is super um, politically sensitive. That's what it is at the moment. You know, you have the Hong Kong protests, um, you know, going on and, and, and continue. Um, and then, of course, you've got Brexit and, and the falling, uh, uh, the drop in, in, in sterling. So, you know, there are a lot of politically sensitive issues. The uh, We had Andrea Leadsom this morning, you know, whilst we, uh, uh, while Francine was interviewing her, her this morning and the announcement came, she said that they would look at, at any deal, but there would certainly be close scrutiny from the UK government um, on, e- on any deal um, of this scale, certainly from the Chinese. So Sarah, what is just the status of the Refinitiv deal that was announced recently? Well, it's uh, it's been announced, but certainly not closed, um, and and that process is still ongoing. So, you know, this is where um, other bidders interested in the LSE had this short window to come in and try and scupper that, and. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange has said that any deal um, um, with Hong Kong Stock Exchange and LSE um, is premised on the refinitive transaction not proceeding. And that, I would guess, um, mainly has to do with the fact that um, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange would not be able to afford the LSE um, should the refinitive transaction go through. Sarah, thank you so much, particularly uh, through the morning here. Sarah Sayed with us. Uh, in London on this proposed transaction, Hong Kong to buy uh, London.
We can go to Luthold Group and they're Doug Ramsey, handsome Doug Ramsey, uh, with us this morning. Doug, I love your note. We're all economists now. Is that really what your world has come down to? <laughs> it seems like it. I mean, it seems like the uh, the economic bulls and the stock market bulls are now one and the same. And, uh, you know, we continue to caution investors. They're, they're not always the same. I mean, think back to uh, that great top of March of 2000. We put in a market top that uh, led to a 49.5% decline in the S&P 500. And the economy did not sink into recession until 11 months later. Uh, so it's certainly possible that something like that could happen again. But, uh, you know, the two can, uh, can disconnect. So, Doug, is this... Periods. Doug, is this the time to uh, for uh, the Tom and I? We talk about we're value stock investors. Is this the time for value stocks to shine here? The once in a decade opportunity. I I don't know if this is the turn. I mean, it seems uh, it seems unlikely to me. And it wasn't. Remember, it's not just you know growth versus value and uh, momentum versus value. It it's everything that was working versus everything. That, that was not. And uh, I mean, from low vol versus high beta, commodity versus consumer, that sort of thing. And I just find it hard to believe you're going to have a watershed day where all of those relationships were one week ago. I mean, the fundamental conviction that nearly every <laughs> strategist had for those trends to remain in place, uh, it, it's amazing how the narrative has flipped with just two days' action. So I, I, I don't think it's going to be a turn in all of those <laughs> right. so binary relationships. Can I just point out valuations it could. Paul, can I just point out the Dow closed at 26,909? <laughs> I mean, if this is this is a Ramsey correction. This is a Ramsey correction. So, Doug, again, as Tom mentioned here, you know, we're at or very near these all-time highs despite <laughs> trade, despite all the geopolitical issues in the world. Equity-wise, what is your view of the market right here? Well, our view is that the last 19 months have been a, a broad uh, global topping process. And remember, on, on the basis of the ACWI, we are not the all-country world index. We are not back to new highs. And if you look at sort of the average stock, whether globally or within the U.S., on the basis of like the value line arithmetic index, excellent measure that's basically the average performance of the U.S. stock, nowhere near a new high. So it's been, in our minds, this broad distribution process yeah. that started, remember, when the economy was red hot and right before those first tariff yeah. devils were fired. I mean, this is great, Paul, to have Doug. Doug, we're going to keep it short today just because of all the breaking news. But the only reason, Paul, we have Doug Ramsey on is because he brings up the value line arithmetic and geometric indexes. <laughs> Which are which are just fabulous. Do you know Ramsey still has on his floor the old value line? He trips over it <laughs> like once a week as we all did. That's right. Doug Ramsey, thank you so much with Luthold Group. It is a joy always to speak with Eileen Burbage coming to us today from Tel Aviv. With Passion Capital, she is outstanding at folding in the digital theology of the moment into our daily lives. Eileen, I know you've never done this. It's beneath you. But 
The truth is, right now, I'm all over the Tide Original Scent Liquid Laundry Detergent, 32 <laughs> loads, 50 fluid ounces, Amazon Choice with 111 customer reviews. Want it today. Order within four hours, 11 minutes at Amazon. Why should that be regulated that I want to get my Tide in four hours, 11 minutes, same-day delivery? <laughs> Nothing's beneath me. I'm willing to roll up my sleeves. You know that, Tom. Um, I don't know that that has to be regulated, but I do think what the regulators are looking at is to make sure that Amazon isn't sort of inappropriately exerting its influence on smaller merchants. So Tide or P&G, I mean, they're probably going to be okay. They can kind of hold their own. They can negotiate what will be, I guess, business, you know, standard terms, market practice, market rates. But if you're a sort of an up-and-coming independent retailer, you've got, you know, a new sort of bio-friendly laundry detergent, laundry soap, and you want to be on the Amazon marketplace too, who's to say that you're going to be able to get the same terms that P&G can get? And I think that's what the regulators are taking a look at. So Eileen, we've certainly, I think, seen, heard, felt over the last year, year and a half, the U.S. regulators, U.S. congressional leaders taking maybe a, a harder look at some of the big U.S. tech companies. How concerned are you that the tide may be changing and that the U.S., maybe taking a heavier regulatory hand to Silicon Valley. Yeah, I'm not too concerned. I, I think actually this is to be expected. I think uh, the tech companies, but also a lot of um, sectors that are influenced by innovation and by data, probably had a little bit of a, a slack or a free ride for maybe a bit too long as the regulators caught up to sort of understand some of these implications and why they might need to look at protecting consumers' interests a little bit more ardently. I think there were a lot of companies that probably also figured, you know, with the president that we've got in the White House, perhaps regulation wasn't going to be as uh, much of a problem or much of a burden for them. And I think it's about time there's been a little bit of scrutiny. The question is how far the pendulum is going to swing and whether or not they're going to take actions that are just for perception or signaling and not actually practically beneficial to anybody. That would be a problem. Right. So, Eileen, it was a, another busy day in Cupertino yesterday. Tim Cook and others on stage uh, trotting out some of the newer products and services. What was your takeaway from kind of what you saw and, uh, and heard from uh, the good folks at Apple? Um, I've got a few takeaways. One of them was that, you know, it's really interesting that they're, they're finally coming down a bit on price points. And they're probably acknowledging that maybe being at the highest end, I mean, extreme high end of the market, isn't maybe going to help them continue to grow their market share. So they've come down on price point. Buying a brand new iPhone 11 is going to be cheaper than when you, you know, had to buy the iPhone X or the XR. They still have a premium for customers like myself that will be buying in the UK or anyone in China, for example. So that will be interesting to watch because I do think they, they heavily rely on what's happening in China. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I saw the emphasis on services, and I think continued push on recurring yeah. revenue is really, really key. Uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, folks. I did it as an experiment with Paul today. I did the thing where you sign up to get ready for September 13th. And I, I want to think, can I thank McKinnon in Millinocket, Maine? <laughs> McK listening on Bloomberg, how does she get Bloomberg 106.1 FM in Boston? From Millinocket, Maine. Flamethrower. She's like totally touchy earth green, and she said, go with the midnight green. So I went with the midnight green color. Eileen, this is the most brilliant pricing I've ever seen. There's this delusion in your world that Apple's a luxury evil brand because it's 1100 bucks a month. That's baloney. We're buying this like we buy a cable TV subscription. 
Well, you're buying, you're going to buy Apple TV Plus like you're buying cable TV now, and that's actually what's affecting Netflix, Disney, and Roku. The phone sets are a different matter. I think there is this dichotomy between people who appreciate function and probably have had these camera features, the extended battery life, not even extended, but, you know, reasonable battery life in Android phones for months, if not longer, and Apple decides to roll them out and charge, I don't know, two or three times as much, and they're going to sell a whole bunch. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're doing this at 40 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, maybe 75 bucks a month tops. That's not an $1,100 purchase psychologically, is it? No, it's not. And that's what they're gambling on. And then what they're going to try and tack on are, oh, you get a free year of Apple TV Plus, or you're going to get a free year of Apple Arcade. And they're really <laughs> trying to get you hooked on those services that you're going to pay for beyond okay, the handset. Uh, we, we're going to stop the show right now. Sweeney's expert on this. What in God's name is Apple Arcade? Oh, it, you're not a gamer, Tom? I'm oh, not a gamer, uh, but how are, gonna, on here. how are they going to compete with the adults of gamers? Because uh, they, they have billions of devices out there, and they feel like they can just go out and get the content. So, you know, Eileen... Tom brings up a good point. I mean, you know, the Apple TV, you know, I thought what was interesting about that was the price point of $4.99, undercutting everybody. Um, do you think Apple is really serious about the content, the video content business um, going forward? I think they're serious. I think this is a pretty serious opening for them. I think the question is how much they're going to back it up. So obviously their catalog or their content material, it's not, you know, at all uh, similar to the volume that's on, on any of the other services. So the question will be if they're going to continue to invest in original programming or if they're going to start to syndicate other people's programs and if they're going to try and develop the volume that other people have um, and the sort of other companies of, of whose stock they affected yesterday. Eileen, you're a great student of London. The time we've got left, I really want to talk about the future of the city. You've been a follower of Brexit and all that, but also a follower of the data investment, the staffing in the back office. Do you still presume that the city will migrate services and staff functions over to continental Europe cities? I think that some are looking at that and probably thinking about contingency planning, but I actually don't believe it's going to happen en masse. I really don't. I think that the city of London is going to continue to thrive. It's got a huge, huge talent pool. People have been here for decades and for years, and we've got great, great centralized support from the regulators and so on and so forth. So I do think they're going to get regulatory equivalents. I think it'd be silly for boards and for corporate governance for people not to look at contingency planning, but I don't think it's going to be a total exodus. Eileen Burbage, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated on technology, but with a really different twist. She's with Passion uh, Capital Partners. Eileen Burbage from London, usually, and from Tel Aviv uh, today. Right now, we are going to go to Chris Hughes, who wrote a durable and wonderful essay off of the shock of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange going after the London Stock Exchange. Chris, I'm going to suggest your essay move the market today, as we saw a huge jump in LSE shares, and they've really come back for a number of different reasons, and I'm not going to give you all the credit, but you really set the tone. How critical is it? Did the Hong Kong Stock Exchange go after this refinitive, the Thomson Reuters data package that LSEs trying to acquire? Well, I think the Hong Kong Exchange is trying to essentially stop the LSE getting refinitive. It's trying to get the LSE. And it's only got a few months in which to do this. The LSE shareholders have got to vote on that refinitive transaction quite soon. 
So it's now or never. So the criticality is sort of in the in this opportunity to get this historic exchange and bust up its deal with Refinitiv, and it you know it's 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 wasted no time. I mean that deal was only inked a few weeks ago, and here it is. You wonder if actually they were thinking about doing this for some well, time, and Refinitiv kind of forced it. But this is fine, and folks, we should mention that uh, Refinitiv. And the old Thomson Reuters and their Icon Terminal is a direct competitor of Bloomberg LP and our claimed terminals as well. Everybody's saying the right things, the posturing. What would you expect will be next? I mean, do you have any idea, Chris Hughes, of what happens into this week through the weekend and into next week? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because this um, negotiation here is playing out quite oddly. You know, when you're trying to buy a national stock exchange, you really want to get everything lined up. You want to get the board on side. You want to get, you know, tee off all of the political side of it. And what Hong Kong Exchange has done is it's gone public with this actually quite tentative proposal. There's not a firm offer here. It's just gone public with this and it's really put the LSE board on the spot. You know, it's kind of came as a big surprise to the market. That's not normally how you go about buying a uh, you know a, a sort of national asset like a stock exchange. So, over the coming days, uh, Hong Kong Exchange has really got to kind of flesh out kind of why this makes sense and try to keep the atmosphere sort of friendly. Even though I think going public with a unsolicited offer is kind of not the most friendly thing to do. So, Chris, give us a sense of kind of the political overtones here. A uh, Hong Kong Exchange, uh, London Exchange. Hong Kong, UK, give us kind of the sense you're you're hearing over there. Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, um, I suppose the first question is, does the UK want any foreign acquire, uh, acquirer to uh, to buy the London Stock Exchange? Now, clearly, the London Stock Exchange is a quoted company. It's got shares that trade on the London Stock Exchange. So in that sense, you know, anyone can come along and buy it. But we all know that stock exchanges are quite sensitive assets. I mean, when they LSE itself agreed a deal with uh, Deutsche Börse, that fell apart, and that was with both management's initial support. So I think the first thing to observe is that you know any cross-border deal for an exchange is just really, really hard. Then you layer on the complication of this being uh, you know, China into the UK. I mean, clearly there are you know, close links between the UK and China in, in many respects, but that's going to cause you know, some heightened scrutiny. So there are a lot of questions on, on all levels about the political backdrop. And then, of course, I have to mention Brexit. Now, this wouldn't be a cheap deal by any means. It's not as if the LSE is trading super cheap because of uh, because of, of, of Brexit. I mean, the, the valuation multiple put on this possible transaction with uh, the Hong Kong exchange is, is pretty racy. So it wouldn't necessarily be cheap, but I think a lot of people in the UK would nevertheless question whether you know, a, a, a prized national asset was being bought at, you know, at a sort of opportunistic moment. It also raises the question, you know, of the Refinitiv deal, because uh, what was the feeling amongst uh, LSE investors about that deal? Was that considered to be something that was strategically wise for the London Exchange to pursue? I think the reality is there's no doubt that it was very warmly received. The LSE share price rose considerably uh, on the uh, on the possibility of that deal and even more when it was confirmed you know quite an astonishing jump about sort of 20 25 percent that's a sort of that's on an acquisition that's a sort of rise you get when a company is being 
taken over yeah. normally. So this was this was very warmly received. Now some of that may have actually been some speculation of a of a of a bid like the one we've seen today. But you know, LSE shareholders do like what that does well, to the LSE investment story. X Refinitiv. What are you actually buying at the London Stock Exchange? I mean, they're not standing around in tuxedos anymore. <laughs> what do you what do you buy what are you buying? What's the the income stream? Itty bitty trades of uh, you know, uh, Sir Howard Davies RBS or you know, what are you buying? Well, that's a really good question. Um yeah, the LSE, it, it what you're driving at quite rightly is that, you know, one may think of the LSE as a sort of platform for trading, you know, stocks and shares. But actually, that business has evolved considerably, kind of a, a, away from just what we would think of as classic share trading for quite a while, mainly actually through doing acquisitions. So the LSE now is, is very big in indices. So they've got a very big platform of, uh, of, of indices, and they are seeking to grow that. Yeah. And also, they're, you know, they're yeah. big in data. And clearly, the idea of the Refinitive deal was kind of, kind of to dilute that old, old-fashioned share trading even more. Uh, Chris Hughes, thank you so much. Too short a visit. Chris Hughes, and I'll, I'll get out. I think I've got it out on Twitter. If not, I'll do it again. Chris Hughes of Bloomberg Opinion. It's open season on the London Stock Exchange. Just a first definitive read on this. Uh, the shock, and that's yes. the right word, Paul. The London media was on fire with this announcement. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.